0: We're going way back today. November the 15th, 2010. Yesterday I said, you know, we had gone back to a time when I was living in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Today we are rewinding back to a point where I was still living in Arlington, Texas. Uh, This would have been the first year uh, that uh, that I was doing the podcast from home. This was... This was the first year of me being full-time. So I was 11 months into it, uh, being into November. So it came from about this time of the year. I remember, well, the reason I did this episode. I had fallen into a regular routine with the show, and uh, question-and-answer shows were on Mondays at this, t- this point in time for the show. And I got up, and it was really chilly outside for Texas in November, really chilly. And it just made me think about... You know, hunting grouse or pheasants or squirrels growing up in rural Pennsylvania and just how much I love the shotgun and I just thought to hell with it I'm, I work for myself, I'll do whatever I want i do what I want, you ain't the boss of me I, so I'm going to talk about shotguns today and I'm really glad I did this show all those years ago, I've done shows about shotguns since, but when I did this show I got so many emails from people telling me thank you, they told me they listened to it multiple times because I went through everything that they'd ever heard people talking about with shotguns and not understood and didn't want to say that they didn't understand it to the friends or people standing around them. Well, they'd say something like, you know, i got a double barrel, an improved cylinder and modified, and I shoot eight shot. Now, what the hell? I don't want to tell anybody. I don't know what the hell this guy's talking about or why you would do that. Um, and there's so many things in the world like that. There's plenty of things. You know, this week I'm doing TSP workshop. I guarantee you some point during this workshop, it's going to be two dudes get together and have a thing that they're into that I don't know nothing about, and I'm going to feel that way. And, and I'll, you know, I'm either going to be like, well, explain that, because I don't know what you're talking about, that sounds cool, or, well, oh, that's your thing and I'm not into that, man. Like, you know, when people are talking about ham radio stuff and all, i got nothing against it. It's just not my thing. But there's, you know, I love when I hear that kind of thing, and I love asking. But a lot of people don't. They're kind of embarrassed to ask, especially. Come on, man, you're a man. You're asking about guns. What do you mean? You know, like, don't ever be that way, by the way. I'm going to tell you right now. People that are gun people, unless they're just dicks. Dicks are dicks, no matter whether they're gun people or fishing or hunting or whatever. It doesn't matter, right? Dicks are dicks. Don't write them off if they're that way. Most gun guys, man, they love to help a person understand things about guns, and that's that's what this show is. This show is everything that I had learned up to that point about the basics of understanding a shotgun, which seems like a pretty simple thing. It's a tube, and the end of it, out comes a whole bunch of these, these pellets, and it kills things and makes them dead. It ain't that hard to understand. But the truth is, a shotgun is incredibly versatile. It's probably the most versatile weapon on the planet. It can do the most things under all types of circumstances. Uh, uh, another piece of the puzzle with this, too, and it was the reason I chose to do this at the time, was we have listeners all over the world, and if there's any gun freedom in a country, something that almost anybody can own is a shotgun. In places where you can't even own a rifle or a handgun, you can own a shotgun. There's places in Russia where there's some real restrictions on rifles, but you can own a shotgun. Right, So it's, it's that thing that everybody can own. It's affordable. Good pump shotguns can still be had for under four hundred bucks no. new. All right, you can go out and buy a, a, a single shot shotgun for under a hundred dollars still. I see deals on shotguns at gun shows all the time in the sub two hundred to two hundred and fifty dollar range, all the time. Old shotguns, nothing wrong with them, just need a little TLC. Sometimes you find some really smoking deals. I have a beautiful little Mossberg 410 pump that I got at a gun show, and I ended up leaving that gun show, locking it in the truck, and going back into the gun show so people would leave me alone alone because of the loophole, which isn't a loophole. But I bought this damn thing, and every 10 seconds, hey, sir, do you want to sell that house? Oh, shit, leave me alone. I no, I don't want to sell Leave me alone. Guy asked me, offered me 100 bucks more, and I paid for it five minutes after I bought it. No, leave me alone. I bought it because I want it. There's, so there's, there's deals. They're one of the easiest little kit things to do. Like if you have a kid and you want to start teaching about guns, to go out and find a decent shotgun, a decent 20-gauge, 12-gauge, 16, whatever, and it just kind of beat up and just give it some TLC and make it, make it almost like new again, but still old because it's cool when it's old. The other thing about shotguns is I dearly love the shotgun. I am a decent pistol shot. I am a damn good rifle shot. Damn good. It, it, it better than most, but I am a shotgun ninja. And, and I don't know what it is about the shotgun. I don't know if it's being a, a, a one-eyed freak. I, I really am legally blind in my left eye. I don't know what it is, but there's just something about it that, I, that I, I had to get better over the years. You know, I wasn't perfect in the beginning, but when I was a little kid, first shotgun I ever had was a Sears and Roebuck 20-gauge single shot which is really a Winchester, just Sears and Roebuck, like private labeled them from Winchester. You could buy them in a Sears catalog. This one was my uncle's girlfriend's, right? Uh, and, and, And when she got it, I think she said her dad paid $29 for it, brand new, delivered to the house from the Sears catalog. And they put that thing in my hand, and it beat the shit out of me. I was like 11 years old, but I could shoot it. And so my uncle comes out with some skeet and starts throwing them. And I'm smoking them. Never touched a shotgun before. First time ever. Most of my shooting up to that point was with a BB gun. It was just something that I immediately took to that instinctual shooting. And there's an art and a science to shotgun shooting. And I love it. I probably love it more than rifles. I like my ARs. But a Beretta White Wing over and under 2020. There's something about a gun like that. That's just elegant. And you you literally look where you want it to be, and it's there. And so I love the shotgun. And I said last week that when it comes to a subject that I know well and I love, I'm a pretty good teacher. If what? If the student wants the knowledge. So if you really want to understand shotguns, this is the episode for you. Again, we are rewinding all the way back to November fifteenth, two 2010. That's 12 years ago coming to you from Arlington, Texas in the past. And with that, just remind you real quick, you can always help support this show how. Do your online shopping starting at what? tspaz.com. Do what? Join the member support brigade and help support the show that you love. Get discounts and let that membership pay for itself. Or, or I should say and or, support us with value for value uh, boosting and streaming on a podcasting 2.0 app like Fountain.fm. With that, here we go. November 15th, 2010. All about shotguns. And uh, so you think that's what I want to talk about. Now, for some reason, I just woke up and I couldn't get shotguns out of my head. And I guess here's why. Number one, if you want to do it all weapon, a shotgun can be that. Everything from small game to big game to home defense, you name it, the shotgun will fill the role if loaded properly and used properly. Um, but bigger than that, a lot of misunderstandings, misconceptions, and outright myths about the shotgun. But the other thing is I always try to keep in mind that I've got people that are in Australia, uh, the United Kingdom, and various countries all across uh, all across the nation, or all across the world, who, when I talk about guns, are often kind of left out uh, because of restrictions, because they don't have a Second Amendment to protect their right that they have. And I want you to understand that today, folks. If you live in some country where you're not allowed to own guns, you still have the right. Your country just took it away from you. It's a God-given inalienable right, at least that's the way we see it here in the United States, because it's part of your right to self-defense and self-preservation. Men should not be disavowed the use of arms. But even in those countries, uh, when you go through proper paperwork and channels, you can get a firearm. And in many instances, one thing you can get your hands on in almost any country that allows any firearm ownership at all is a shotgun. So I thought it was a more universal topic. So let's talk about shotguns today. Let's start out with, you know, what is a shotgun where did it really come from? And that's debatable. It really is debatable. What, what was the first shotgun? you know? But here's what really happened over time. When mankind first invented the gun, it was natural that he put a single projectile in it. So we're going back to um, we're going back to like the first muskets that weren't even a matchlock musket. They were basically a, a mini cannon that you held in your hand. And you had something kind of a punk or a smoldering ember, and you lit the back of it and fired a projectile. And that went forward, became the matchlock musket, which we won't get in today, and eventually became the flintlock musket, and then we got into percussion caps. And eventually somebody put rifling in the board and made the projectile spin, and that was the first rifle, and that went further. And, of course, there were cannons, and cannons were used much the same way, single projectile, and something called canister shot. And canister shot in a cannon looks, you know, like a big enough cannon, almost looks like a coffee can. And inside there are a whole bunch of balls, just like a giant shotgun. And along the way, not only were the military starting to figure out that hey, we could take more people out at close range with these cannons with this canister shot in it, but the the the, the frontiersman, the hunter, it was going you know, the, the upland game hunter, anybody who was out there hunting realized, hey, if I have this great big seventy five caliber musket, and when I talk about gauges and how they relate to the calibers later, you're gonna see uh, well, you know what a big deal that is some of these old muskets 75 caliber you know 60 65 caliber 55 caliber things like that 62 caliber there's all different big bores of musket sizes went you know what if I took a whole bunch of little bitty tiny projectiles and loaded them in there instead of one big projectile I would get this spread and it wouldn't be good for shooting something like a deer. But I could certainly knock down that grouse or that Tarnigan or the bird, whatever kind of small game it was. And I would have more likelihood of hitting it what if it was moving because I would get this, this sprayed out thing called a pattern. And really the shotgun started out as an evolution of the musket and then over time bifurcated into its own world. So that's where they come from. And that's basically what a shotgun is at its core. Now, people turned back around and took the shotgun and made it fire a single projectile. We call it a slug. But in essence, the shotgun was designed to be a weapon designed to, instead of firing a single projectile, fire multiple projectiles in one shot, have that create a spread and a larger area of impact. And, and that's where the shotgun, you know, that's what it is today. That's where it came from. And, and let's talk now about shot. I think a lot of people are confused by shot sizes. Um, you go, you look at a box of shotgun shells. and Let's leave buckshot out of this for right now. Uh, let's leave slugs out. Let's just talk about typical shot sizes. And people look at it and they see number 8s, number 9s, number 7.5, number 6, number 4, um, maybe number 2s, maybe BB, maybe a T-shot. What does all this mean? Well, I'm certainly not going to run through a shot size table and tell you the diameter of every every pellet because uh, you won't remember it, neither would I, and it's kind of boring. But basically, all you really need to know is that the higher the number, the smaller the pellet. And the bigger, the lower the number, the bigger the pellet. So, a number nine shot is a hell of a lot smaller than, let's say, a number six. And let's give you some diameters just to kind of drive that home. A number nine shot is 2.01 millimeters in diameter. That's tiny. That's a little tiny speck, really. Uh, a number six shot is 2.77 millimeters, and that might not sound like a lot, but whenever you look at a shotgun shell, and we'll get into this more when I talk about the anatomy of a shot shell in a minute, uh, but you'll see a weight, how much shot is in there, an ounce, an ounce and a quarter, an ounce and an eighth, an ounce and a half, uh, seven eighths of an ounce. So when we look at smaller projectiles, clearly there's more in an ounce than there is with a bigger projectile. So if I were to take a one-ounce loaded, field-load, 12-gauge shotgun shell, loaded with number nine shot, a nice short-range dove round, something like that, or for shooting skeet, you know, breaking clays, there would be 585 of those little tiny pellets in there for one ounce. If I go, just move just three shot sizes to a number six, um, there's only 225. Less than half. Now, what's the trade-off there, though, when we, when we do that, okay? Well, obviously, more would seem like it's better. But if a shell, a little, the pellet, individual pellet is smaller, it's also lighter. So if the two pellets are moving at the same speed, the heavier pellet does more damage. It's got more weight, so it's got more energy per individual pellet. It's also larger, so it does more damage when it penetrates whatever you're shooting with. So, d- down at these shot sizes we're talking about, we're talking about maybe number sixes, squirrels, rabbits, maybe pheasants, Smaller ducks uh, would be the, the appropriate use of a shot size like that. Nines, we're talking about quail and dove, um, things like that, birds of that size. It's really kind of getting out there, and, you know, I don't really know anybody that hunts with tens or twelves or things like that, even though they make those shot uh, sizes. Nines are kind of the, 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 the bottom end limit on diameter. So, when we go with a higher number, we get more pellets. If we get more pellets, our patterns are going to be somewhat more dense. We'll talk about pattern density and how that relates later. But obviously if I have, let's say, a 18 inch circle, and inside that 18 inch circle, there's 500 pellets that have to spread out somewhat evenly across that circle. And then if I have another circle of the same diameter, and I have 250 pellets in there, the one with the 500 is going to be, have a lot more pellets per square inch. It's going to be a lot more dense. I'm going to put a lot more pellets into the target that way, all other things being equal. So those are shot sizes and how that works out. Let's talk about what gauge is and what it has to do with caliber. Um, gauge is, for, for now, we'll, we'll actually save the caliber relations for a bit. Gauge for now, again, it's it's like kind of an inverse relationship. 10 gauge is bigger, and then you step down to a 12 and then down to a 16, and down to a 20, down to a 28, and then a 410 is kind of its oddball thing, but it's the smallest one of all. So a gauge is the easy thing for right now as we go forward, just so you have a frame of reference if you're very new to this, is the, the smaller the gauge, the smaller the diameter uh, of the tube, the higher the number of the gauge. So why do they use gauge? Why not caliber? What does this gauge thing mean? Where does it come from? Uh, Again, we'll talk more about it later, but just an understanding as we go forward, what what are all these weird, there's so many numbers in shotgunning. We got numbers of gauges, we got numbers of shot, we got gauge sizes, shells, all this stuff. Powder, drams equivalent. So what does the gauge thing mean? Well, gauge is a function of weight, actually. So if you had a perfectly spherical, round lead ball, so lead obviously has a common weight. So if the same size, it's going to weigh the same over and over and over again. So I have a lead ball that weighs one-tenth of a pound, that ball would be 10 gauge in diameter. If I have a lead ball that weighs one-twentieth of a pound, it would be 20 gauge in diameter. So that's where that number comes from. That's actually how they figured it out when they standardized on this stuff. A 20 gauge, if you made a spherical lead ball, and again, going back to single projectiles, that would be a 20 gauge shotgun. If we had one that was 1 28th of a pound, we have a 28 gauge. While it doesn't exist, if we had a 1 30th of a pound red lead ball, that would be a 30 gauge. You could theoretically make anything you want, but that's where gauge comes from if you've ever wondered about it. Uh, Not that it really has a huge impact on our choices in life, but it's good to know these things. Let's now talk about the anatomy of a shotgun shell. I think this is the one thing that's missing for many people. If you don't really understand the shot shell's anatomy, all of these other things become complicated. Shot shell starts out with, just like a rifle cartridge, a case. You have to have something to hold everything. And in the bottom of that case is a primer. A primer is a little explosive element that when the the firing pin hits it, it explodes and it sets off the powder. The next thing that goes into... That shot shell, when we're putting it together, is powder, and then over top of that powder, we put a thing called a wad. Some modern shotguns, these, I'm going to give you multiple wads here. Some they have them combined together in one wad now, but in the past they were used, they usually used cardboard or paper. And there's a wad that's designed to hold that powder down, compressed against where the primer sits at the uh, the, the you know the, at the face of the shell. On top of that is what's called a shot wad cup, which is basically a second wad that's designed to kind of encapsulate the shot. It's usually open on the end, pointing out where it will fire out, but a lot of times you'll see them built like a little four-armed cup, so that when it goes out, that cup opens up. That's to keep the shot together as it goes down the bore, and as it initially leaves the shotgun to give it consistency in its pattern before it allows the, the pellets to open up. Sometimes And and then the next thing you have is the shot or the payload, because we could have slugs, right? There could be a slug in there. So regardless of of what we have, there's our payload next. And, And generally, for right now, we're talking about shot. Then sometimes, there's something what's called an overshot wad. And that is another little piece of wadding, usually cardboard or paper in the old days, over top of the shot, and then the case is crimped down on top of it. That's optional. A lot of shot shells actually do not have an overshot wad. They rely on the the case itself to hold the shot in at the end. Um, Some do. It depends on what purpose it's built for. And then there's also something called buffer. Buffer is definitely optional. It's usually in premium hunting loads and premium buckshot loads. A lot of buckshot loads have buffer uh, just because of how much extra space is in there. I want you to think about this. If you're putting objects into a container... A sphere, a round ball, is the least efficient way to pack things in there. And the bigger the ball gets, the least efi- the, the, the more uh, damaging you have to your efficiency. So if you have a coffee cup and you fill it with small marbles, typical marble-sized marbles, you'll fit a certain amount of marbles in there, and then you could pour sand in there. And there's a certain amount of sand you could pour in there. And if you did it with the same coffee cup, the same number of marbles, every time you poured the sand in there and leveled it off, if you really got it all packed in there nicely, nice dry sand that would flow in between the spaces, you could do it over and over again, and the same amount of sand would fit in there each time. If you baseline that, figure out how much sand goes in that cup when it's full of those little marbles. And then you took those little marbles out, and you put in the big giant marbles, a shooter marble, right? You throw those in there. And now you add sand. Well, it's obvious that, and this is important because it starts to get with densities and efficiencies and everything else, and it'll also it explain buffer. You would think that basically the same amount of sand should fit in there if you're not thinking like a physicist, right? You'd think, of course, there's less balls going in there. They're bigger. But basically, they should take up, you know, they should, it should all equal itself out. Well, it doesn't. The bigger that ball gets, if you think about two balls and you put them together and maybe put them in your hand into a clump, the bigger the balls get, the greater the spaces between them become. So you might have to put twice as much sand in there to fill the cup with sand now. So that's why a lot of times dropping down a shot size, if, if the shot that you're using will still do its intended purpose. So for self-defense, maybe going from, it may be dropping down multiple shot sizes. From something like double O buck to number one or number four buck is actually very good defense loads. Especially at the typical defense ranges. And you get a lot more pellets, and they're still big enough to be lethal. Same thing with, uh, let's say, being out in the dove field. I see guys out in the dove field with seven and a halves. They might do better if they drop down to an eight or a nine shot, depending on how far out the doves are. We'll get to that with patterning in a bit. But every time you drop down a shot size, smaller size, higher number, the balls get closer together. There's less space in there. Well, as you get into larger shot sizes and you want really dense patterns, let's say buckshot. Or let's say turkey, uh, waterfowl shooting where you're shooting a big, tough bird. Big tom turkey, 25, some of those birds are 30 pounds. They take a lot more killing than you would think, and a lot of times you're taking a long shot as a turkey hunter, 40 yards away, big time full choke, and you want that pattern to stay, stay together. Well, if you're using a relatively large shot, there's a lot of space in there. When those pellets come out of the end of the shotgun, they're under extreme pressure and they're smashing into each other as they disperse. And if, as they smash into each other, they slightly deform. The more they deform, the less efficient they will travel through the air. If you have pellets traveling at different speeds and different trajectories, your pattern opens up and becomes less dense. So one way to counter this, and usually, again, it's with premium shells for specific purposes, is to put a buffer in there of some sort, some sort of small, granule uh, components that keep the shot from busting into each other, becoming deformed. So buffer is an option, but it is in some things. Before we move on to actions, I want to talk about Magnum, because Magnum is one of the big overused terms in shotguns, And not only is it confusing to people, and and it's a marketing hype around it, the way that, let's say, Magnum rifles are, but the rules are completely different with a Magnum shotgun versus a Magnum rifle. If I have a Magnum rifle versus a standard rifle, let's say a .30-06 versus a 300 Winchester Magnum, and we're going to try to be somewhat equivalent between the two, and we have a 150-grain bullet in each, and it's the exact same bullet, the big advantage for the Magnum is what? Higher velocity. It's gonna push that 150 grain bullet at a higher velocity. And that's gonna give it greater long range performance. It's gonna carry energy further out into the field. So it's gonna hit harder to just make it as simple as possible at 300 yards than the 3006 will. And that's it. And then the other thing is I can't fire my 300 Magnum in my 3006 or my 3006 in my 300 Magnum. Shotguns, it doesn't work that way at all. Shotguns will have a chamber length. A standard shot shell chamber length is two and three quarter inches, and that's not really even the case anymore. Most manufacturers have started manufacturing their shotguns with three inch chambers. So they can handle two and three quarter inch shells or three inch shells. They can handle magnum or non-magnum. Just about any three inch shell is going to be called a magnum. Some two and three quarter inch shells are going to be called a magnum. But here's reality. What makes a Magnum shot shell is a heavier payload than a standard payload. So if a 12-gauge field load has a standard shot weight of, let's say, an ounce and an eighth. So one and an eighth ounces of six shot or seven or eight or whatever it is. A Magnum may have an ounce and a quarter or more, depending on if it's a longer shell. So it's got more pellets. Everything being equal, I've got a non-magnum and a magnum, and they're both sh- size, uh, sh- shot, shot size six. And if I can afford the space, I may even put some more powder in the magnum shells. So it's a three-inch magnum six-shot versus a two and three-quarter inch standard shot shell. As long as my shotgun has two and th- three-inch chambers, I can shoot either shell in there. I can even do something like if I'm expecting close shots followed by longer shots, I can throw three inches in my magazine and have my initial shot be a field load. So that my second shot has greater reach, greater lethality. is I've got an animal that I'm shooting at further away. So it's not like rifles at all. Here's the other thing. Most instances, the velocity goes down, not up. Because I'm trying to push more weight it's going to be just like a rifle here. If I go from a 150-grain bullet to 180 grain bullet, in a 180-grain bullet, in a you know equivalent pressure, I'm going to get a slower speed, muzzle velocity, and retain velocity out of my 180-grain bullet. Same thing with a shotgun. So that is where they're the same. But that's really what it's all about, is more pellets, a bigger payload, and sometimes more powder, depending on how much space is available, how much real estate in that shell. That's what a Magnum is. And that means that your Magnum shotgun is nothing. It's complete horse shit When somebody calls it a Magnum shotgun. The shell is what makes it Magnum. If When they usually say that, what they mean is it will take larger shells. And then there are some like... You know, we have three and a half inch 12-gauge shells because some people just think that, you know, 3 inches isn't enough, I guess. And these are generally special-purpose turkey guns, goose guns, things like that. And I think they're a bit excessive and they're not necessary, but if you want them, they your cup of tea. But now you know what a Magnum shotgun is. Let's go through some shotgun actions here to uh, kind of just do an overview of that. I've done that before, so I won't go too deep today because I want to talk about some other things. But, we you know, it's a good thing to go through for people that don't know. Uh, a brake action. Break action is simple. It means exactly what it sounds like. It breaks open. This will be your single-shot shotguns and your double-barrel shotguns primarily. There's also something called a drilling. Uh, Drillings are specialized. The drilling is really an uh, African-origin gun. Most of them are actually made in England, but they were made for hunters in Africa. And a drilling would be basically a side-by-side rifle in general. So you might have and a fairly, you know, generally a fairly large caliber, uh, something that could shoot things like buffalo and elephants. So you'd have a side-by-side, big old cigar rifle barrels, and then a third barrel underneath that, and generally a 20 or 12-gauge barrel down there. And that allowed the uh, professional hunter that was out in Africa with his clients to carry one gun and maybe... Shoot some, shoot some, uh, you know, I don't remember what they call them now, like sand grouse or something like that. They call them over there. To shoot, uh, small game with the same rifle he could back his client up on if he was dealing with a charging buffalo or elephant or something like that. Um, and then also maybe load up buckshot and use it as when you go in after dangerous game, a wounded animal, follow up. But that's kind of off, off the key. I just thought I'd throw that in there for people that didn't think they'd learn anything today. Uh, but for everybody else in the world, us, You've either got a double barrel or single barrel. And you've, if you've got a double barrel, you've either got what's called side-by-side, where the barrels sit side-by-side, or where they sit one on top of each other. That's called an over-and-under. Uh, for field use and hunting, I think it's generally accepted by most people that people tend to shoot better with over-and-under shotguns. If you look at most of the people that shoot uh, sporting clays for competitive purposes, they choose an over-and-under. I really like side-by-sides, though. The limitation with any double barrel shotgun, though, is something called regulation. If you think about it, if I have two barrels pointing, they can't be pointing at the exact same point for the entire distance that they're pointing. If they're pointing exactly side by side, they're going to spread out as they go over distance. Eventually, it, with a properly regulated double-barreled weapon of any kind, rifle or shotgun, the two points meet, and they regulate that to a distance. So there's a precision loss, but with a shotgun, it's not enough to matter. There's your over and under. There's your break action shotguns. Pump shotguns. I love pumps. I find them to be the most reliable shotguns when you look at something with a higher capacity than one or two shots. Far more reliable than most semi-autos. I think they make people more deliberate shots. I don't think they're the best home defense shotgun. But I do think they're damn good for the purpose. They do have the limitation. I've got to be able to pump that gun. If I've been injured or something like that, and I fired a shot, and I'm, you know, let's go worst case scenario, I'm under fire. It may be very difficult for me to work that action, where with even a double barrel, I get two shots off even if one of my arms is injured. That is not the most likely scenario to end up in, though. I think for the field use, I really like them a lot, though, over semi-autos. So when I say field use, I'm talking about sporting purposes here, the dove field, hunting grouse, hunting pheasants, things like that, rabbits, squirrels, because I think they make shooters more deliberate in their shooting. And let's face it, how much killing does a squirrel need? Generally, one well-placed shot is all you need. Sometimes there is follow-up shots. Uh, things like ducks, a lot of times you might hit a duck on the wing. And that duck's going down, and you can see that that duck is alive. And a lot of times that makes sense to drop another shot, and ducks that are wounded that land in water will dive underwater. Uh, you have a lot of lost game by not taking follow-up shots at times. So it's good to have a follow-up capability, but you know not all of us are going to be Tom Knapp trying to break 10 sporting clays thrown from the hand before they hit the ground. And I think that the pump gun will shoot fast enough for most shooters based on their ability. I also tell you it's extremely fast. Once you once you become proficient with a pump, it's completely um, free of any real thought. It's not boom, right? It's booch, and it's it's just you're coming back almost assisted by the recoil. Once you become proficient with with a uh, pump shotgun, you, you don't even think about it. And as you're bringing the the, the pump forward, if you're taking a follow up shot. You're moving anyway as you move on to that second shot. I found that when you take a new shooter especially and put them in a field with a lot of shooting, like dove shooting uh, or ducks, being called in over decoys or something like that, when you put a semi-auto in their hand, they miss more and they use a lot more shells. And when you put a pump gun in their hands, they tend to be more deliberate in their shooting. And I see a lot more hits on the second shot From pump gunners than I do semi-auto shooters. I think once you've become really proficient, there's no doubt that the semi-auto is more smooth and faster. Won't say a lot about the semi-auto because we just covered a lot of it there. But the semi-auto is you pull the trigger and just like a semi-auto handgun, one of the shells is ejected, one of the shells from the magazine is chambered, and you're ready to fire again. So basically you can fire all of your shells as fast as you can pull the trigger. That has advantages and disadvantages we just talked about. Two other types of shotguns I want to throw in real quick here. One is a lever action shotgun. There's not a lot of them out there. I think Winchester's making one right now. They're kind of neat. They're kind of a novelty. I think some cowboy action shooters are using them. Uh, they used to be a little bit more popular when lever guns first came out, you know, back a hundred years ago. Um I think they're cool. I don't think I'll ever buy one, and if I did it would be for novelty and fun. I'm not saying they don't work well. I'm not saying they're not reliable. I'm not saying it's kind of, not kind of neat to go out maybe and, uh, get a 410, uh, lever action shotgun, uh, lever action shotgun and, and go out and maybe shoot squirrels with it or something. they be kind of cool. Um, but it is a cool factor to me over a functional factor. Then there's also bolt action shotguns and, and they kind of fill that niche the same way for me except here's the big difference for me between the two. If I want a lever action shotgun, it's expensive. New ones are expensive. Old ones are really expensive. Bolt-actions, I, and I could be wrong. I don't know of anybody currently manufacturing a bolt-action shotgun right now. But there's old ones everywhere. Mossberg used to make them. Um, Ivor Stevens used to make them. I think Ithaca used to make them. And quite a few other. I think Savage made them for a while. I, I could be wrong about that. Sears and Roebuck definitely marketed them. I don't remember who made theirs. It might have been Motha, Mossberg that actually was the manufacturer of the Sears models. But they're out there. They're all over the place. Some of them are just straight you know, normal barrels. A lot of them have uh, adjustable chokes. We'll talk more about chokes in a minute. Um, but they're a cool looking gun. And a lot of them are really beat to hell. But a lot of them, and I have one. I have one in 16 gauge made by Mossberg. Underneath that lacquered, beat up old finish is a beautiful piece of walnut. Sometimes, uh, in my case, black walnut. And stripping the stock down and then refinishing it with something like true oil, you end up with a really beautiful looking gun. They're lightweight. If you get a second magazine, they're quick to reload. They have the ability to follow up with shots faster than you would think. I remember, and they're cheap. That's the big one. I bought one for 50 bucks. $50. And uh, it looked like hell. It had some white paint on it that wasn't painted on there. I don't even know how it got on there, like streaks of it, like it was rubbed against the wall. Um, the barrel was actually slightly bent at the end. It had uh, some venting, and I don't know if it was leaned or pushed or weighed, but some the barrel was a little bit regulated to the left. I fixed that by putting it into a vise and straightening it and then testing the regulation of the pattern. That's all it took, and it stayed fine since then. Uh, you're dealing with lower pressures. I'm not worried about it blowing up like I would if I did something like that to a rifle. It would be ridiculous to do that to a rifle. I refinished the stock. It looks beautiful, $50. Took it out and uh, do some skeet shooting with some friends from a place I worked at at the time. And I uh, had uh, my 870, and we were shooting, and I brought that out, and they were saying, you know, you can never get two shots off with that. So I was out there breaking doubles, skeet doubles, with a, with a um, bolt-action shotgun. And it's like anything else. If you practice with it, uh, it comes up to speed pretty quickly. It's never going to be as fast as a pump, definitely never as fast as a semi-auto, never as fast as a double gun, but you can you know, do follow-up shooting with it relatively quickly. I mean, our military across the world used bolt-action rifles for a big period of time, you know, in the 1880s and through the early 1900s, and uh, that bolt-action was a big step up from everything else at the time. So it's kind of neat, it's inexpensive, it's a great way to maybe get that first shotgun if you're on a really limited but super limited budget. You can walk around gun shows even today, find them for $75. bucks. i have seen ones that look like they came out of the box yesterday for $85, $95 in gun stores. There's not as many as there used to be. I think people are starting to kind of gravitate to the novelty and buy them up a little bit and just if nothing else, a $90 shotgun, script, buy it, throw it in the closet. Um, but I'll tell you what I really like them for. Uh, with the short, there's some big long-barreled goose guns, they call them. Marlin, I think, made those, and a few other companies did as well. I'm not a real fan of those, but the field-length ones, the ones with 26-inch barrels, very, very lightweight compared to a pump shotgun uh, or even a double. So for the person that's hunting squirrels or rabbits, it's not doing a high volume of shooting, and they wants a gun that they can just you know, not worry about scraping up and what have you, they're a great choice. So I wanted to throw that in there as well. Um the next thing I want to talk about is, you know, what do we use shotguns for? And if you go read a lot of articles, you'll see um, sporting, you'll see hunting, and then you'll see like five versions of defense. Military, law enforcement, home defense, offense, you know, and I'm going to lump things and make them smaller and simpler into the worlds that really matter today. I, to me, when I look at a shotgun, the first thing I think of is small game hunting. Because I've had to feed myself every day of my life, and I've had to be in fights, uh, you know, I can count on one hand, actual, physical altercations I've had to be in that I could not avoid. So my first thought is always, let's put food on the table. And the shotgun excels for Mr. Squirrel. I'm watching three Mr. Squirrels right now out my window as I talk to you. They're all looking at me through the window, wondering why I haven't f- filled the bird feeders. Um, but those guys, you know, they're kind of dumb. I probably wouldn't shoot them unless they uh, spend too much more time in my guard. But out in the woods... They're, uh, they're, you know, relatively tough to hunt prey. They figure out they're being hunted quick. They act completely different than the ones you know in, in the, uh, in in the city park and what have you. And obviously I'm not going to load up my deer rifle and shoot one of them. I'm not going to have anything left. But some six shot from a shotgun does a good job. If I'm out in the dove field, I want number eights, number nines. I'm sitting out there. So when we look at sporting, For small game, we're looking at using a shotgun, using sporting shot sizes. And again, just to give you a feel for this, doves, quail, eights, nines. Pheasants, uh, birds of that size, six to seven and a halves. I I usually use seven and a halves on pheasant. Squirrels, rabbits, I like to drop the number sixes. Smaller ducks like wood ducks and teal, I like copper-plated number sixes. We move into things like hunting geese and turkeys. I like to drop down to number fours, and in some situations, number twos. But sporting purpose shotgun is, you know, your 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 whole purpose is to be out there gathering game. When we look at big game, you have two choices and two choices only. You have buckshot and slugs. Once you get out, outside of that small game range, none of the things that we use, you, you would think, okay, I've got this shotgun loaded up with number two shot, Full choke, and I got a deer standing 20 yards away. If I put it behind the shoulder, that's so much pellets, and they're large. I'm going to do a terrible amount of damage. I may even kill the animal. Uh, I may even kill the animal and recover the animal, but I certainly can't rely on it to happen. Even with buckshot, deer hunters need to be limiting their range to about 25 yards. And that's under optimum conditions with a really perfectly precise shot. Um, slugs will change the entire dynamic of your shotgun for you with big game hunting. With typical old style, what they call foster slugs, it's just a big old chunk of lead. If you can hit an animal, the, the range is. It, it, the, the killing lethality of that slug exceeds the accuracy capability of it, I'll put it to you that way. The, the key with foster slugs is you want a smooth bore barrel, you want a typical shotgun barrel. That's what they were made for. So they'll have these little fins in them, almost like rifle fins, like rifling-shaped fins. They don't really do much of anything other than when you fire them through kind of a tighter choke, it gives them space for that slug to compress. So they're good for that. On chokes with uh, Fosters, I've heard a lot of of different people with a lot of different opinions. Some say you want a cylinder bore open choke. Some say you want a modified choke. Um, I think most people shy away from using them in full chokes because you're just making so much compression at that point. I've shot them mostly with what I use as a day-to-day choke in my shotgun, kind of my all-around choke, which depending on the, you know what's going on, it's going to be improved cylinder or modified. I'll talk more about chokes in a bit. And I've never had any problems with that. There's shotguns that are made with rifle sights or with cantilevers to mount scopes that are smooth bore that are designed to shoot foster slugs. It's a great choice for the deer hunter that's going to be taking shots mostly in the 50-yard or less range. They are plenty accurate for that. Um, they had a bad reputation for accuracy at one time. Uh, I have found that with an 870 pump action shotgun, 26 inch barrel, uh, improved cylinder choke, no sights at all, using the beads and lining the barrel flat, just like you're shooting it as a shotgun, I can hit uh, you know quart sized beer bottles out to about 40 yards with a good slow take you know taking take your time shot. So the foster slug was kind of really so that you're out, you know, in the days where you're trying to feed yourself. But this is one really good use for them. I'm out there, I've got that shotgun, and I'm out there expecting to shoot, you know, grouse and, and or, or turkey or anything. If I happen to be in a place where seasons overlap, or I happen to be in a survival situation, all of a sudden there's a deer, or there's a black bear, or there's any kind of game that's of a size that I can't use, you know, pelleted shot for. I can open the breech swap out that shell, put that slug in there, boom, take that animal. And that's why I think that wherever you go, even if you're in a place where, now there's some game departments that have a problem with this, you got to be careful. You definitely never load them into your gun. If you're going to be out there with a shotgun, and there's any chance that you might not come home today because you're going to get stuck out there, you know, three to five foster slugs belong with you um, as a survival tool. Uh, but I do know there are actually some states that like, prohibit you from carrying them in small game season if deer are not in season, because they know that they can be used by poachers. Um, I'd rather pay the fine than be stuck out there. But understand that you know, some states, game wardens can do things like confiscate your gun, confiscate your vehicle. It just doesn't usually go that far, but it can. I think most game wardens are of the mindset that, you know, what is the intent? They have a lot of leeway and latitude. I've never had a problem with it. I've never had a game warden uh, take my shotgun vest out, pull out all my shells and check and see what kind they are. I have had them do that in Waterfall honey, where um, it's steel shot only. Uh, steel shot we won't really talk about today, but there's places where you can't use lead shot. And I've had them check your shells that way. They've never really checked them all. They've checked a few just to kind of see what you're doing. They always check the ones in the gun. They check for plug capacity uh, if you're using a, a semi-auto or a, a, a pump shotgun. They'll generally make sure that you've you've plugged it to capacity. Uh, You can have no more than three shells when hunting migratory birds. And some states have that three-shell rule for all small game hunting with shotguns. So there you go on foster slugs. There's also rifled slugs. And uh, rifled slugs are definitely great for big game. And and they can, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, sabo slugs. And this is basically we take the projectile we make it smaller. So instead of sitting there with a 12 gauge with a big old 72 caliber pumpkin ball, as they used to call them, I've got something more akin to a forty-five seventy 70 round. A 45 caliber um, bullet of, of some sort. There's all different shapes and sizes they make these things. Some look like a giant pellet, like a huge pellet from a pellet gun. Some look almost like a muzzle loader bullet. Some are pretty damn well, that's what they are, is a bullet for an inline muzzle loader. And with a plastic Sabo around there, and I can now I can use a smoothbore, but I'm better off with a rifled shotgun barrel. It'll put spin on that, and that projectile comes out, and that sabo falls away. And basically, I've got a 200 yard rifle and a shotgun. Now you might say, well, how do I make my gun that I'm using for hunting squirrels and grouse do the same thing? Well, you can buy a barrel. So if I have a 870 or a Mossberg 500 or any good pump action or semi-auto shotgun, I can probably go out to the aftermarket world. And I can buy that slug barrel for less than buying a second gun. Now I've got something really flexible. I can switch back and forth. I can have my foster slugs when I've got my smoothbore. So if I'm out there, I've got dual purpose. If I'm going out on a specialty hunt for big game in a place where I can't use a rifle for whatever reason, I can't afford one, I don't have one, there's a law against it. There's places where I can use a shotgun with rifled slugs, but I can't use a rifle because I've got less range that way. And what they're worried about is safety. All of these things come together. So those are your two big uses there. Um, there's also, real quick, I'll touch on sporting clays, uh, skeet shooting, any kind of like target shooting with shotguns. I love to do that. It's a lot of fun. It's a great way to stay in tune with your shooting. I prefer sporting clays over everything else, though. Sporting clays has been described as like golf with a shotgun. I think it's something, if you have any place in your area where you can go out and shoot sporting clays. I think you should do it. And if you're not experienced with a shotgun, if you don't own one, you can rent a shotgun, and they're not expensive to rent for a round because they want to sell you the round. You have to buy your ammo. right? They give you the gun. They have all these rental guns. Hire an instructor for a day or two. Uh, go to the different parts of the course and let the guy explain to you what you're going to see. A lot of times the instructors will shoot with you. They'll shoot first. Uh, and, and get that instruction. I think it's a great way to become a better shot. Uh, next though is defense and offense. So whether it's a, a police officer using a shotgun on, a, on an entry or you using one to defend your home, we're kind of in the same realm as far as projectiles. Here's what we need to understand about home defense and a shotgun. I can have this tactical looking shotgun. You know, 20 inch barrel, 18 and a half inch barrel would have you, black, heat shield, place to mount a bayonet, lights on it, pick Timmy rails, everything. And if it is basically sitting there with three inch buckshot, let's say double O buck, standard that everybody, you know, relies on, load it up in there, and I've got, let's say, a cylinder bore or an improved cylinder skeet style choke, something in that range, and I take my Remington 870 that I take in the field and hunt every day, I've got a longer barrel on it, which is not as good for inside the home, uh, as far as maneuverability and what have you, but if I load the same shell in there, those two weapons have the exact same effect. And I'm not, I'm not ever putting anybody down when I say this, but I want you to understand this. If you have day to day, I'm not talking about, you know, end of the world as we know it scenarios. I'm not talking about typical survival scenarios. I'm talking about somebody breaks into your home. If you just grab the same shotgun you hunt, you know, birds and deer with, with the right shells in it, it's as, it's as effective as anything else you could use. If you are part of law enforcement, if you are part of military operations, if you are a private contractor that does these things, and if you are building a specific purpose-built weapon for a true survival, long-term self-defense scenario, I think you're much better off with a purpose-built weapon that looks like what it's designed for. In your home, day-to-day, I think if you can give one less bit of ammunition... To a prosecuting attorney that wants to try to make a case where one doesn't exist, that a sporting shotgun, hey, I'm just lucky I had it. I'm just lucky I had a way to defend myself when somebody came to your home. If you want that slicked-up, heat-shielded Mossberg, 18 and a half inch barrel, extended magazine, you want to keep that under your bed or in your locker, the first thing you're going to grab if you need to defend your home, I'm not putting you down. Just saying, it's something to think about. In fact, I'm coming more and more over to the way you think every day. The more I think about different home invasion scenarios and the advantages of a shorter weapon and having a purpose-built weapon and living in a state like Texas where you know things are different, for people in some states, it's a lot less likely that you're going to be given the benefit of the doubt in a home invasion scenario. So it's something just to think about. I also in the past talked about the fact that if you did something like you had a shotgun with a full choke and number six shot, I would see that as adequate for self-defense. After looking at a lot of ballistics reports, I don't feel as confident in that as anymore. Um, I also have gotten away from the double O buck philosophy. Reading a lot of the work by Peter Capstick, who put more shots, uh, more more buckshot into more living creatures than any person I know that's ever recorded it. Now these aren't human beings, but these are large animals like leopards trying to kill him. I have come away with the belief that probably the optimum. Home defense, what, at home defense ranges is number four buck. Because of how many pellets there are and the size of those pellets. Let's, let me give you a breakdown of that real quick. Okay, if we look at 00 buck, the, the gold standard, if we look at a one ounce load of 00 buck, there's eight pellets and they are 33 caliber pellets. Number four buck, we drop down to a 24 caliber pellet. But remember, your, uh, your AR round is a 22 caliber round. Uh, it's not the same. Uh, number four, pellet weighs less than, than 55, 60, 60, 62 grains, uh, and it's moving a lot slower. But how many do I get into an ounce? 21 of them. Imagine being hit in the chest, throat, and thorax by 21 projectiles. And if you have a larger load, like an ounce and a quarter, ounce and a half, this number goes up. 24 caliber projectiles. You're talking extreme hemorrhage, and you're talking about more density to your pattern. I want to talk about pattern densities here in a bit. But that's just me. You say, I want to use number one buck, fine. Okay, but you know what you get out of an ounce? You get 11. Again, double O, what do you get? Eight. What do you get out of an ounce of number uh, zero buck? You get nine. And I want you to listen to the, project, the progression here and understand what I was talking about with the efficiency. The smaller the pellet, the more efficiently we can put it in. Triple O buck, kind of a specialty thing you don't see a lot of. Six will fit in an ounce. It's actually 6.2, but you can't put 0.2 of a pellet into the shell, right? So it's six into a one-ounce load. Double O buck, eight. We only went up by two. Going from double to zero, we go up by one. We go to nine. Go from uh, zero to number one, we go up by two more. We go to 11. We go from one to number two buck, we go up now. Efficiency starts to kick in. We go from 11 to 15 with number two buck. Number three buck, buck, we go from and okay. Let's let's do some calibers here. And when I do number one buck, I'm looking at 30 calibers. So that's a pretty good round. You just don't see a lot of number one buck loads out there. Number one buck, I'm putting 11 30 caliber projectiles into an ounce. Number two buck, 15. So you see that number grow. It's 27 caliber. When we move to number three buck, we go to 25 caliber. I get 19. We go to number four, I get 21. Number three, number four, Buck, both of them to me seem like really good home defense uh, pr- projectile loads. When you might need to reach out further, you're more of an offensive uh, capability that you're looking for. It seems to me that moving up to the double O uh, range has a lot going for it because as we extend the range, the greater weight of the projectile, the longer, longer it retains its speed. So we get a light projectile, it moves faster, but when we're pushing an ounce, we're pushing an ounce. So if we have the same powder load, and we have an ounce of number four and an ounce of double O, they're going to come out the barrel at about the same speed. But over time, the heavy projectile moving at about the same speed will continue to move at a greater rate of speed for a longer distance, extending your range. And then having that double O is 33 caliber, two or three of those put into you at that longer range are going to still have a lot of lethality left to them. But, again, it's all about what you're using the weapon for. And here's the beautiful thing. You can carry, you know, with shell carriers and things, both. You can carry number four, double O, and slugs. And you'd say to me, well, what's the difference, you know, ten feet, between double O and number four? Well, the double O is more likely to penetrate the walls more. Heavier projectile, more retained energy more likely to go through one wall into the next room. Not that number four won't. Just, you know, number four, again, this is apples and oranges, but yet it doesn't really matter that much. They'll both do the job. Again, it's just from reading the results by a guy that used both when his life was on the line in a totally different way. And you think your life is on the line when you're dealing with a bad guy that wants you dead? Imagine dealing with a sick, wounded lion or leopard that wants you dead. And you're going into dark bushes at night, and you're deciding which one of these things I'm going to carry. The guy that did that for a large portion of his life ended up settling on number four. That's why I think it bears at least your consideration. Um, so there you go on home defense, law enforcement, things like that. I, I could do a whole show on that, so I just wanted to give you an overview of it. I want to like talk now about the numbers and what all this stuff really means, though. Let's talk about chokes. You're, there's other chokes, there's extra full, there's, you know, things that people make up in between. But this common chokes that we look at are cylinder bore, and that's basically unrestricted. That's the most open choke there is. Skeet, we got a little bit of constriction, a little bit tighter of a pattern. Uh, and that's again what most, uh, you know, skeet shooters, close range clay shooters use for a, a very wide pattern. Uh, improved cylinder is my favorite all around choke. And that's just a little bit tighter of a constriction than skeet. Then we move to modified. That's probably everybody else's uh, favorite all-around choke is a modified because it kind of sits right in the middle between skeet and full. Um, I just, having shot both of them a lot, and with the you know REM choke systems they came out with 20 years ago where you can swap them out and have one barrel and just swap out a tube, having done a lot of shooting with both, unless I'm dealing with longer shots, high winds and things like that, I've found with grouse hunting, squirrel hunting, things where you end up with close shots. Dove fields especially, you're walking out to stand, but there's some doves down in the field and you kick them up and they're 15 feet away. It just hammers them less with that little bit more open choke. Modified's a great choke too. I like to carry choke tubes with me when I'm in the field. If I'm out hunting ducks and we're getting longer passing shots, I might move up to a modified or even improved modified, which is a little bit tighter. And then there's the standard full choke which is a very tight, constriction, long shots or specific applications. Most turkey hunters are going around with a full choke shotgun. So those are your chokes. And they have a big effect on pattern. And the thing about a choke you have to realize is I could take two 12-gauge shotguns, both of them that are a modified choke, and put a caliper at the very end of the barrel, and one might be slightly tighter than the other. They might throw almost exactly the same pattern. Because it's not just how tight the barrel is at the end, but when we leave the standard bore, the standard 12 gauge bore, the angle of the constriction, so we might get a little bit tighter at the end, but take a little longer to get there, or we, or, or a, a little less time to get there, or we might take longer to get there and get a little tighter. And that, that, if you take your two fingers and put like your two pointer fingers and put them out in front of you and make them as straight as you can so the distance is the same down where they join your hands and the tips of your fingers, and then, you can put your two tips of your fingers together and put them at one distance at a very steep angle and another shallow angle, and that angle is really what controls the choke. And there's no standard for what that's supposed to be. So the only way you can actually check and make sure a choke is proper is to use the caliber in two different measurements, and then there's a conversion process and all. But know this, if it's Remington, Winchester, Mossberg, any of the good manufacturers, your chokes are probably going to be right or correct. So what is choke really based on? It's about the density of the pattern. Okay, so how dense the pattern is. If I shoot at a circle and I look at my inner circles, my outer circles, a full choke has a certain number of pellets that need to be in that smaller diameter. There's actually fixed measurements and distances to do this with, but it's, it's minutiae that will get boring on an audio show. Just understand that a full choke is supposed to have a tighter, denser pattern than a modified. And a modified is supposed to have a tighter, denser pattern than a skeet. And, and and we'll leave it go for there for right now, and then understand the purposes of, of your, your chokes. Your cylinder bore is a lot of times used in your home defense weapons. Zero constriction, let that pattern open up quickly. I'm not a huge fan of that, because there is always the potential for that longer shot, and a little bit of constriction goes a long way in improving the density of the pattern when we move out past 25 yards. Inside the home, though, it is academic. It really is. Ski, modified, improved cylinder, cylinder bore, double O buck, number four buck, what have you, inside the home, 20 gauge, 12 gauge, I don't care. If you look at my house, there's very few places that I could shoot more than about 12 yards, I actually have a clean line of sight to an assailant, and at that distance, it's, it's not going to matter that much, because it takes time when that shot comes out of the shotgun for it to begin to, to, to expand into its pattern. When we look at small game hunting, rabbits, squirrels, anything that could be in close, we look at skeet, improved cylinder, a lot of double gun shooters, people to shoot over and unders and side-by-sides, will go with a really great combination, which is an improved cylinder in your first shot and modified in your second. So we bust a couple of a quail, I pick out a bird, I drop it. Whether I drop it and I'm shooting a double or I've missed and I'm shooting a single, my second shot is obviously going to be at greater range. So I have a tighter constricted choke for that second shot. That's a great advantage to double guns. Because our single barrel guns, whether they're autos or pumps or whatever, the shot is the same every single time. Um, here's the thing that I think people don't really know or don't really realize. Ammunition itself can have a huge effect on your pattern regardless of your choke. I can take a gun with a, with a six, uh, uh, let's say, number six shot, standard uh, two and three quarter inch shell, and I have a Winchester and a Remington. And you'd think they pattern exactly the same. But if I go out there and put paper to them, and I fire 10 with my Winchester and 10 with my Remington, sometimes they'll pattern exactly the same. Sometimes they pattern extremely different as far as the density. The size of the pattern will probably be pretty daggone close to the same. But I might find in like certain ammunition my gun doesn't just like. The de- the densest part of my pattern might be in the low left quadrant of, of let's say, a circle with, a, with an X in it. And then the other shell may have this nice, beautiful, even pattern. Well, then that's what I want to use in my gun. And this is becomes more and more the case with smaller gauges or special purpose rounds. When I look at turkey rounds in, 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 that are designed for really tight patterns um, and you know heavy shot and things like that, I might try three different ones and pattern all three different ones, and my gun may do great with a specific Winchester round, and your gun, it's, even if it's they're both 870s or they're both 1100s or whatever, looking exactly the same way, same length barrel, same choke, same everything, your gun might pattern better with a different manufacturer's ammunition. Just like rifles. You know, one might shoot beautifully with Remington 150 grain uh, rounds, and the other one might shoot better with Winchesters. It's not as critical... But it is something worth looking into. And again, I see this to be a huge factor with 410s. Little bitty mouse gun, the little 410, seems to have, like some manufacturers, like the pattern has this huge hole in it. And it might be right in the center. You know, I I had my son, one of his first shotguns I bought him was a 410. We went out squirrel hunting with it. He missed a squirrel. I'm like, you know, and he missed another squirrel. So I took it away from him. The next time we had a squirrel sitting out in front of us, I said, let me show your old man how to do this. Wham! This is a squirrel. We got a pattern, this thing, and there was a, uh, a hole about the size of a basketball in the center of this pattern at about 20 yards, which is where we were sitting about how long these shots were. We went to a different ammunition, and the gun was fine. There was nothing wrong with it. It just didn't like that particular brand of ammunition. And again, with the specialty waterfowl loads, specialty turkey loads, especially the turkey loads, this is really where you want to check it out. Standard field loads, I've never even bothered. I mean, I really could care less when it comes to um, things like, you know, number 8's, number 9's, dove shot. I'll pattern the gun to make sure there's no holes in the pattern or something wrong, any kind of nicks in the barrel that have created something. But overall, I have found that that's not really worth concerning yourself with. But with specific ammunition types, you're going to find that there is a variance there. I want to talk now about the gauges and give you kind of related caliber So with everything we've talked about, you can start kind of putting together some things. Going back to the days of the muskets, you know, and where the shotguns kind of originated from, and the guy that would be out there that would hunt deer and hunt birds with one musket on the frontier. And think about some of these these guys were running around 72 caliber. All right, just keep that number in mind. Uh, that was but that was a common musket ball diameter at the time. I think there was quite a bit of stuff out there in around the 66 caliber. Um, there was a 74 caliber that was actually quite, uh, common in the musket days. So, how does that relate to shotguns? A 10 gauge shotgun has a 7.7.5 caliber. 7, just call it 77 caliber. 12 gauge, 72 caliber. 16 gauge, 66 caliber. 20 gauge, 61 caliber. A 28 gauge is 55 caliber. So that 50 caliber Hawkins, right, that standard muzzle loader, Basically, it's pretty damn close to being able to be used in the black powder world. Anyway, it's kind of like a twenty-eight gauge shotgun. Nice little shotgun for hunting quail and things like that. And the, these old timers—that's what they did. They would use shot um, when they had a small game, and that way, because you know these guys are going out there in the frontier, they couldn't carry a gun case. You know, with ten guns on their on the back of their pack horse. They might have one gun and maybe a, maybe a handgun or two. And this is how they, this is where all this stuff eventually came from. 410, the little, the little shotgun that can, right, is actually 41 caliber. It's the oddball. It's the only one that doesn't use that lead ball, uh, you know, percentage of a pound type thing that I talked about before. And let me go through the the, the gauges and tell you my thoughts on them in brief because we're going long here at this point. Number one, 10 gauge. I have no use for a 10 gauge in my home. I don't need one. If I hunted geese all the time, I might consider it. I think that a 3.5-inch load in a 12-gauge, a special-purpose-built 12-gauge for goose hunting is just as effective, if not more effective, and I just don't get the point of having the heavier frame and having to lug more weight around. Other than it's a heavier gun, the recoil is a little less violent, and shooting these heavier loads, the recoil can be pretty heavy, and it can be kind of abusive at some point. But I'm just not a fan of it. If you want one, I have no problems with it. 12-gauge, what can I say? It's what everybody has. Great available of ammunition from everything from buck to slugs to to birdshot. Any store you walk into, if they sell ammunition, they're going to have something for 12-gauge. It's kind of a one-purpose do-all gauge. It's got a great amount of payload capacity. It's got a great amount of power. You don't see a lot of law enforcement officers running around with 16 or 20-gauge shotguns. There's a reason. Uh, My buddy Peter Capstick that I used to read all his books wrote an article for... um, I can't remember if it was guns and ammo he wrote for. It was some magazine he wrote for. And there's a collection of them I have in a book by him. And uh, it was called Anything the 20 gauge, the 12 gauge can do better. And I have, when it comes right down to it, I gotta agree. Um, I'll talk a little bit about where you get some strength in the smaller gauges here in a bit. But when it comes down to it, with an equivalent type of load, an equivalent choke, I'm gonna have a higher, uh, payload. More weight of shot, maybe 7 eighths in a 16 gauge or a 20 gauge, an ounce and a quarter in a 12. Right? And I'm gonna have more pellets. I have more pellets at an equivalent velocity. I've got greater range, I've got greater pattern density, but it comes at a price. It doesn't come at a financial price because 12 gauge ammunition is as cheap as anything else out there. 12 gauge shotguns generally cost about the same as 20 gauge shotguns. There's not a lot of price differential there. The price is in weight. The frame is heavier, the gun's a little heavier. And if you pick up a 20-gauge 870 pump gun, really popular uh, uh, frame, and a 12-gauge 870, you're going to notice the difference. We're not talking about 2 or 3 ounces here. We're talking about a noticeable difference when you're out there in the field carrying that thing all gone day long, especially on long upland game hunting. We're also looking at a significant difference in the volume size and, to some degree, the weight size of ammo. The way I say, the reason I say weight size is because if I'm carrying three-inch, 20-gauge magnums and they have, you know, an ounce and a quarter or an ounce and an eighth a shot, and I'm carrying 12-gauge with an ounce and an eighth a shot, they pretty much weigh the same because the most heavy thing in there is what? It's the shot. But in general, field loads, you carry more 20-gauge with less weight and less volume same thing with 16 and going on down the line. Most 16 gauges, let's move to 16 gauge now, are built on the same frame of 20 gauges. The 16 gauge is sweet to me. It's something I don't even know why I don't own a pump-action 16 gauge shotgun. I've got that, uh, that bolt-action one. And I think if I ever go out and, and break down and finally buy another double-barrel shotgun, a side-by-side side or an over-and-under, it's going to be a 16 gauge. Again, built on a 20 gauge frame. Why? Um... If you look at 16 gauge shot shells, and you look at their payload, how much, uh, weight in shot they, they carry, it's pretty close to a 12. You don't give up a lot. If you look at their muzzle velocity, which again, all things being equal, if the choke is the same, if you got the same amount of shot, it doesn't, if I have an ounce of shot in a 12, a 16, and a 20. I want you to really understand this right now. I got, uh, uh, because I do, I load them myself. Just to try and experiment. One ounce of shot, and a 12, a 16, and a 20. All three uh, shotguns have a modified choke, and all three shotguns have a muzzle velocity of, let's say, 1,300 feet per second. They are identical. They're absolutely identical in the field. Absolutely. Let me be clear what I mean by identical. If I fire all three of them at 25 yards at a paper target with a great big circle with some few variations based on just pattern variances. They're going to hit, and they're going to look almost exactly the same. There's going to be the same number of pellets inside the circle. The density is going to be almost identical, and the power they hit with is going to be the same. And that means that the 12 gauge and the 20 gauge have no power difference whatsoever with that load. He thinks it can't be possible. 12 gauges have to have more power than 20 gauge. No, 12 gauge have more power capacity. The capability of greater power. Remember, the shotgun is always about the shell, how much powder, and and, and that relates to how much muzzle velocity we get, and how much shot, and how much weight. So the thing is, I can take a 12-gauge with that greater capacity in the shell, and I can take an ounce and an eighth of shot, or an ounce and a quarter of shot, and I can easily push it to 1,300 feet per second. I can't generally pull that off with a 20-gauge. And in general, if I want that velocity, if I want that same thirteen hundred feet per second, then maybe I'm doing seven eighths of an ounce of shot. So now I fire both of them. This is where they're also identical. This is where you gotta get this. If I fire the twelve gauge, twenty-five yards with a modified choke with an ounce and a quarter of a shot, and at twenty gauge, it doesn't even matter the shot size, it's just say the same shot size, both are seven and a half. Twenty gauge, seven eighths of an ounce of modified choke at twenty yards, and I shoot that the pattern size. How far the outer, di- you know, how much of an area they cover should be the same. Absolutely identical. A little bit of variance here and there, shot to shot. One might change one way and one the other way, but there's got there. N- it's not like the 12 gauge covers a barn door and the 20 gauge covers a window. They're the same size because that's what the modified choke is all about. How much it allows the pattern to disperse at 25 yards. So where does the added power of the 12 gauge in that scenario come in? When I look at the pellets, there will be greater density in the 12 gauge. And that means whatever target is hit, let's say, will be hit with 20% more pellets, or 25% more pellets, depending on the load variance. And that means 25% more projectile weight and energy goes into the target. But the, tar- the, the, the pattern size is the same. A lot of people, I think, don't realize that. Um, moving on down the line from 16 to 20 gauge I feel a lot about the 20 like I do the 16 but I give up more capacity with the 20 than I do with the 16 but 20 gauge, here's the beauty with this definitely a size advantage for storage and carrying and weight but ammunition availability Uh, 20 gauge is damn near as available and configuration wise as well you don't see a lot of double O buck in 20 gauge you just don't fit enough of them in there but number four bucket and a 20 gauge, that's a damn good home defense round. And you say, why number four over double O? Well, what if your gun's a, 12, a 20 gauge? I mean, there's a perfect example right there of why you would choose one over the other. To get enough pellet capacity out of the smaller diameter, smaller capacity shell. Um, but you can go out and find 20 gauge slugs. You can find, you know, six shot for rabbits, eight shot for doves, uh, Two-shot, four-shot in 20-gauge for turkeys, 3-inch magnums. Um, you can find anything, you, rifled slugs, foster slugs, no problem. Any big box sporting goods store, anywhere you go, 20-gauge and 12-gauge are almost uniformly uh, available. 12-gauge may be a little bit more, but there's more people that own them, so when the demand peaks, it all equals out. If you can get 12-gauge shells, you could probably get 20-gauge shells. 16-gauge, the weakness is not as available. Now, I've had people write into me and say, you can't even get 16-gauge buckshot. Yes, you can. Cheaper than dirt sells it and a lot of other people do. You can't even get 16-gauge slugs. Yes, you can. Federal makes them. Remington makes them. 16-gauge, uh, you can get in every configuration you want. You just better get it while the getting's good because it's not as available. And you're not going to generally be able to drive down to Walmart or Academy, or any of these other dick sporting goods, or whatever's in your area, and walk in and take your pick from 16 gauge the way you can from, from 12 and 20. But for the hunter, what a great, great, uh, great compromise between the 20 and the 12. Again, because it's built on that lighter frame. And a pound in your, your, your shotgun, when you're covering 10 miles a day, up and down hills and through fields and things like that, it matters at the end of the day. It matters a lot. So that's kind of where I am with that. Uh, the 28-gauge, I don't own one. I've shot one a couple times. They're neat. They're extremely low recoil. Another big advantage for the 20-gauge, when you field loads, a lot less recoil than the 12. Uh, 16, I, I, I can't really tell. I mean, the, the loads are so close that, unless I'm looking at heavy loads, the 16-gauge and the 12-gauge, are. if you can shoot one, you can shoot the other. Um, I think that the advantage that you get from a slightly lower payload with the 16 gets countered by the slightly lighter weight of the, of the shotgun. So you feel more recoil, but I, I have no problem shooting any of them. The 28 is soft recoil. I think it is a much better shotgun for the small frame shooter who's not ready to move to a 20-gauge yet, that kid, than the 410. More payload, you want confidence in a new shooter, more likely to be able to take the target out, but it's expensive and the ammo's expensive, and the availability's not there. 410, um, to me, is it's always like the kid's first shotgun, because at least he can shoot it, but it's more of an expert shotgun, really, to me. Um, you have to be a lot more precise. Your patterns are nowhere near as dense. Your range is limited, but, hey, you know what? It can do the job. I knew a guy uh, named John Slifko, a good friend of my father's, that would just knock ringneck pheasants down at 35, 40 yards with a 410 and kill them stone dead, but the guy was a crack shot. And, and to me, you kind of have to be if you're going to pull that off. Um, and it's also very expensive. 410 ammo is expensive. Go out and look at, you know, a little box of 25 rounds of 410. But, very lightweight and carry a whole lot of it. You can get it in slugs. You can get it in buckets kind of. A, uh, I, I don't get it. I, I, I mean, short range for something like using the Judge revolver or something. Uh, but I think if you're going to have a shotgun, a typical 410 shotgun, and you're going to use it for defensive purposes, Forego the buck and and go with uh, slugs, Foster slugs. Basically, you're looking at a 41 caliber uh, slug, which is plenty enough to do what needs to be done for defense and even for some big game hunting. The range is not quite up there uh, with some other you know calibers or other gauges like 20 and 12, what have you. But it's pretty dad pr- pretty dad gone awesome. The Snake Charmer uh, 410 that N E F makes is a great little survival shotgun. But four ten to me is kind of a you know, it's it's not really something you use because you settled for it, it's something you use because you want to. It's not a good first shotgun, I, I feel for most people. If recoil is a problem, go with a twenty. And I think if you start out with lighter field loads and you're practicing and, and it's the other thing with recoil. You know, that three inch twenty gauge magnum number four buck is a pretty hefty recoil. If you're shooting it to protect yourself, you're not going to notice it. Whenever that adrenaline's up, even in the deer field, you, know, you shoot a heavy recoiling rifle at a deer, you don't even feel it. Even if you get hit in the face and you get a bloody nose because you held it wrong or something, you generally don't notice it at the time you notice it later. So you can always practice with lighter loads with a shotgun. Use your heavier loads for defense, and rest assured you're going to be able to do what you need to do because it's all about muscle memory at that point, being in the right mental state and things like that. Whenever I do a show like this, I realize how deep shotguns are, you know, and how how much information there really is. Let's move on to patterning reality. And I guess I could do a whole show on patterns, honestly. I just feel like it would get boring. But let me give you kind of the overview and some myths about pattern. Hopefully by now, from everything you've heard today, you know that the whole concept of I have a 12-gauge with an open cylinder and uh, I'm a o buck and someone's in my house. I just got to point it in their general direction and pull the trigger and a couple slugs are going to go into them. Well, again, we got eight double O bucks. Eight. To an ounce. Let's say we got an ounce and a quarter. We're probably looking at 10, 11 pellets in most of those loads. Maybe 12 with a big three and a half inch magnum or something like that. A couple of them? Realize that there's only eight, there's only nine, there's only 10, 11 of these things to, to hit somebody with. I also understand that pattern is going yeah, I don't care if it's an, I don't care if you take a hacksaw and cut it off at 16 inches. Then there's no choke at all. That pattern is going to be very dense at, you know, this five to seven yards that you're likely to need this in your home. You have to aim a shotgun. And if you don't think so, go out to a dove field and watch how many doves people miss. and realize they're shooting relatively open choke, small shot size, and 500-odd BBs are flying through the air every time they pull that trigger. And the guy that misses three shots at one bird, boom, 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 just let loose 1,500 pellets of that bird streaking by 20 yards away, and the bird flew away, and he missed every daggone one of them. Now, if he can miss with 1,500, what are your odds of missing if you don't aim with eight? A shotgun has to be aimed. And in a home situation, you got to aim it the way you would a rifle. Now, the good news is, the human body is a large target. When you look at a dove... You make a fist and stick your thumb out like Fonzie, and then pull your, keep it uh, stuck out, but pull your thumb in so that like the first joint touches the hand. You put that up in the air, and it's, that's going across so you don't have a pattern from the wing if they're rolling or whatever. That's your target at a dove, 25 yards moving away. Put your hand on top of your head, and take your other hand and put it on your waist. There's your target on a human at seven yards. So it's much easier to hit. It doesn't require the same level of precision. And that's why we can do things like shoot shotguns with shorter stocks and they're optimum for defensive shotgun roll. And a shorter stock's not optimum to be out in the field because of fit. I'll talk about that as I close up today. But you do have to aim. That point and pull shit is a myth. And every every time you hear it, write it off and write the person's advice off you hear it from. Because they don't know what they're talking about. And I don't like to sound arrogant or anything, but I'm sorry, they don't. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard people in gun shops on the back side of the counter telling someone, looking at a gun for defense, that kind of nonsense. Next one is, I said this before, ammunition can have a huge effect on the pattern. I can have two loads of buckshot or two loads of six-shot, same gun, fire them both, and one manufacturer's ammo will change the pattern. If you're having a problem with your pattern densities, try a couple different brands of ammunition. Again, I don't think you're going to see a huge effect at the field level with things like seven and 9s. When you go into specialty purpose, turkey loads, goose loads, heavy shot loads, uh, defensive loads, you're going to find that to be the case. Again, it's also more about density than the size of the pattern. When I move to a heavier choke, when I look at the pattern, it might be a little bit smaller. I take a full choke, at 25 yards, and I take a modified choke at 25 yards. The pattern may be slightly more constricted. Uh, there's there's no doubt about that at all. But it's not going to be that big a deal. We're not looking at one as, a, again, one's not going to be a barn door, and the other one is not going to be a window. right? They're going to be pretty daggone close. And when I look at modified between a 12-gauge and a 20-gauge, they're going to be identical in the outer diameter of the pattern. That's not what creates the greater lethality. It's the density within the pattern. That, that full choke is going to hold that density together longer, and it is going to be a tighter pattern. And its outer dimensions are going to be smaller. But when I go from gauge to gauge, and I'm just putting more, or if I'm using uh, a 3-inch Magnum versus a 2 and 3 quarter inch field load in the same shotgun at the same choke, when I shoot them 25 yards, they're going to be absolutely identical in outer diameter, but one's going to have more pellets within that area, greater density, more lethality. So patterning is in many ways about the density, not really about the spread. Because the spread is sufficiently small that it's not really so much why you miss, but it's why if you get the, you know, if you're tracking a bird and you get them with the outer edge of the pattern, and the pattern's not very dense there, you cripple him, maybe he hits one or two pellets, it's not enough to bring him down, he flies away, maybe he scratches at that piece of shot underneath his wing for the next year or two, and he hates you, but you didn't kill him. But with more density, you're more likely to bring those outer parts of the pattern down. The next thing is, and this is one that I think, if you didn't learn anything yet today, odds are you're going to learn something right now. Patterns on moving targets are different than patterns on still still targets. When we think of patterning a shotgun, we generally think about it the way I've described it several times today. We go out and we get a picture of a turkey's head. We're shooting C targets, and we stick it on a box. And we put it out at 40 yards, and we get our special purpose turkey shotgun with our short barrel and our extra tight choke. And we sit up against a tree just like we're going to in the woods. And we fire that thing off, man, and it knocks the hell out of our shoulder. That's a heavy recoiling round. And that pattern goes down there and hits that turkey. And we go look at that, and in our heads, we see that pattern is a flat circle. Because that's how we see the pellets on the thing. What I mean is, if let's say we shot that at a relatively close range and it's the size of a paper plate, in our minds, we see, we hold up that paper plate, and that's what the pattern looks like. Flying through the air, all these pellets in a s- flat circle. Now, if you think about the, f- about physics at all, you'll understand that can't possibly be that when those pellets come out of that shotgun, some are going to travel slightly faster than others. Because some are going to be in the back pushing, and some are going to be in the front free. And as that shot, the bigger that the shot expands um, outward, the more it's going to expand in length. And it's, it's going to become a trail of pellets traveling through the air. And when we get out to ranges like 25 and 30 yards, the time between when the first pellet hits... And the second pellet hits is significant when you're shooting at a bird like a dove that's crossing you at 50 to 60 miles an hour, or a green-winged teal duck crossing you at 70 miles an hour. So what you're actually doing with a shotgun when you're shooting at winged and moving animals is it's almost like back in the World War II when the planes would fly over and they'd shoot up this flak and it would make this little puff cloud and the plane would fly through the cloud, it's kind of like that, only moving a hell of a lot faster as far as it's it's going across. Because instead of putting it up there and letting it spread out, it's being shot through the air. The only way you could actually see what your pattern looks like relative to the speed of your, your intended target is let's say you're shooting doves, and the average cruising speed is about 30 miles an hour. You'd get a great big giant paper wall on a slide, and you'd move that, at 30 miles an hour, crossing you at, let's say, 30 yards. And you put a big dot on it, and you follow it just like you're following a bird, and you shoot at that dot as it goes by. And what you'll see, instead of this nice, perfect circle, this long trail with density declining as you go, and a lot of times you think you've let a bird far enough with a shotgun, and you end up hitting them, but you don't knock them down, you cripple them, or you don't even re- kind of ruffle the feathers, and that's because they got that last bit, a shot they got that tail way off at the end. It almost looks like a comet if you do this. The last pellets have less density and they're spread further out. But when you're shooting at a moving target with a shotgun, the important thing to understand is it's not, again, like throwing that barn door up there in a flat one-dimensional space. I don't care how big the pattern is. In fact, the bigger the pattern, you have to understand this. What makes the pattern the biggest is shot distortion soft lead pellets with no buffering like we talked about, and they get beat up against each other in pressure, pressure and they deform, the more they deform, the less aerodynamic they are. The shot that's the most deformed is going to move the slowest, and the shot least deformed is going to move the fastest, and the more shot deformation we get, the greater that string is going to be, and the, the less density we're going to have on the back half of that string. So I just wanted you guys to know that. I I think that's something that very few people actually realize uh, unless they're professional shotgun shooters that are out there shooting or unless they've worked with those those kinds of people that had this explained to them. Um, The last part, though, is precision shooting is the key. I don't care whether it's knocking a dove down or knocking a bad guy down. It's precision. It's all about precision. Think of your shotgun like a rifle with a few different rules to it. You're more likely to lead and swing with a shotgun. Yes, your odds of hitting a target go up with a shotgun because of the pattern dispersal, but you have to shoot the center of that pattern with almost the same precision as the rifle. I say almost because you generally shoot quicker, and there's things you can do with a shotgun that very few people can pull off with a rifle. Some people can do it. I mean, there's the exhibition shooter that can hit the dime thrown in the air with a 22, but for the rest of us, there is a little bit of leeway, but it's still about precision. Now, let's finish up with choosing a shotgun for yourself. First one, what do you want it to do for you? What is your main purpose of the shotgun? If it's to hunt with, you don't go buy, you know, a kitted up short-barreled mossberg. The guy asked about using one for deer hunting, and with rifle sights and all, I can see using it as a deer hunting shotgun. But if you want a general purpose all-around field shotgun to go out and hunt doves, ducks, turkeys, you want to, like for right now I can afford one shotgun, what do I buy? Then you really need to, you know, not Go out and buy a shotgun the average patrolman would have in the back of his car. If your only purpose, you're buying a shotgun and you want I want a home defense shotgun, then by all means, the more tactical shotgun is going to be better for the job, the shorter length alone. You really have to think about fit when you're looking at what you want it to do for you. Fit of a shotgun is so important. People that buy $10,000 shotguns have them custom fit. They go to the, the guy that makes the gun. And he fiddles around with the stock. He'll put a stock on the shotgun that's not going to be the final one, that has all these different little areas he can adjust by turning knobs. And he'll get that shotgun perfectly fit to that person like a glove. And then he'll build the stock based on those dimensions. The big thing is length of pull and rise of comb. Length of pull is how far from the trigger to the end of the stock that actually goes into your shoulder. And the problem with these shorter shotguns and shorter stocks uh, if you pick up a youth model shotgun you're a full-size man and try to shoot ski with it, you'll see this so quickly. When you have that too short of a length to pull, it puts your head up where and you're looking down the barrel and instead of seeing a flat one-dimensional plane with maybe a bead at the end, you can see the rib of the sh- you can see the top of the barrel. So if you stick your arm out straight in front of you, you'll see that it's almost impossible when you have your shoulder up against your chin, you look down your right eye to get your arm into any position, where you can not see your arm, where you can only see the the, the one-dimensional plane. About the only way you'll do it is is you lower your arm at about 45 degrees, maybe lower to the ground, you can pull that off. That's what your shotgun barrel should look like. With that short stock, it's not going to fit right. You're going to be looking over the barrel. Short stocks in a defensive situation, man-sized target, relatively slow target, uh, heads up, the advantage of having the compact design overrides that. Swinging on an animal out there in, in 25 yards away, doing 60 miles an hour, or coming at you doing 60 on a passing shot, things like that, that little bit of variance will make you miss. You'll you'll overshoot your target every single time, and that, that that's the reality. That's what you have to look at fit related to the purpose of the shotgun. Whereas, I can take that all purpose, general purpose shotgun, and I can throw double O buck in it at night when I keep it under my bed. And if somebody breaks in the house, they're just as dead as if they're shot with that fancy-looking Mossberg or Benelli or whatever it is. It's still going to do the same damage because it's about the the ammunition more than the gun itself. But, again, you're a law enforcement officer. You just want it for home defense or something like that. I can see the attraction of a more purpose-built shotgun. Um, The next thing is, what budget do you have? I mean, for for the budget-conscious person... I think that it's really hard to beat the pump shotgun. I mean, really, really difficult to even uh, make a case for anything else other that, uh, for the first-time shotgun purchase. This morning, I got up, and uh, I was getting ready to do the show, drinking a cup of coffee, talking to the dog, and my wife had left the Sunday paper on the table, and I kind of looked through to see what kind of circulars and ads are in there. Academy Sports and Outdoors, which is kind of, I think, local to the Texas area, but a pretty big box store has a Mossberg Maverick pump shotgun in either 20 or 12 gauge on sale right now, and not as a sale. It says their everyday low price of $169. $169. I've never even heard of the Mossberg Maverick before, um, but I looked them up online, and they are not a Mossberg 500 technically, but any Mossberg 500 barrel, which is a really standard, great shotgun for defense and field use, any of the barrels for the 500 go right onto the Mavericks. So they've gotta have a frame that's very similar. Maybe there's some ways they save some money on them, but I would bet you if Mossberg's putting them out, they're a pretty damn good gun for 160 bucks. And that's a hard thing to turn your nose up at if you don't own a shotgun yet. And they have a black stock, um kind of a synthetic stock because that's cheaper than wood uh, for the manufacturer to make, and maybe that looks a little more tactical, but these are sporting shotguns. They also make um security, you know, kind of law enforcement, low end shotguns. The retail on these guns, brand new retail according to the manufacturer, around two hundred and twenty to two hundred and thirty dollars. And of course the discounters are coming way off of that retail. Down 160, 170 bucks. Go to a gun a gun show and you'll find old 870s, old Model 12s, old Ithaca pumps. You'll find, I mean, and the Model 12 is a very uh, well known Winchester pump shotgun. You'll find pump shotguns, old ones a little bit beat up, all over the place for under 200 bucks. So the and you have you know, ammunition capacity that's relatively good. you got speed of follow-up that's relatively good. You can generally find some decent kind of older side-by-sides and and over-and-under shotguns uh, for a few hundred dollars as well, so that's another good option. But it comes down to how much money you have and what you're going to buy. And I would rather have a $170 kind of low-end shotgun without a lot of accessories on it than no gun at all. And if I only had $400 to spend, I'd rather have a hundred and seventy dollars shotgun, and by the time I pay taxes and everything else, two hundred bucks and two hundred dollars worth of ammunition, than a four hundred dollars shotgun and no ammunition. So it, the budget always comes in there. The other thing is, what do you already own? If I, if you're sitting at home, you already have a good home defense handgun, you have a good centerfire rifle, and you have a twenty-two. Your choice of a shotgun may be very different than a person that has nothing. Because you may be looking for more of an all-around general-purpose gun or more of a home defense gun if you have that battery. If you don't have that, then you might need to say, you know, I might need to rely on this someday. If the shit hits the fan, I might need to take this thing out in the field and hunt with it. Maybe I'm looking at that. If I only want to own one gun or I can only afford to own one gun, I'm going to buy a shotgun with a standard barrel on it for field use, and maybe I'm going to save up and I'm going to buy a barrel that's more appropriate for a home defense situation. And Whenever I'm at home and I have that weapon set up for home defense, I'm going to swap the barrels out on it. But if I want to go out and go dove hunting, when I get an opportunity with some friends, and I can use that same gun to do do both dual duty, that's why they're so wonderful, they're so flexible. Um, And this is the big one, folks. Even you guys that want your home defense weapons and, and things like that, don't discount the 20 gauge. James Yeager, who I'm good friends with and I have a lot of respect for, Um, who actually keeps the 12-gauge as his own home defense weapon, said he had to admit one thing. If you're good with a 12-gauge, you'll be awesome with a 20. Flat out lighter, easier recoil to deal with, and if you're going out and you're shooting and you're training a lot with it, it's going to be less damage on the body, you're going to stay good longer. And I'll tell you what I've never heard. Man shot with 20-gauge slug through chest lives. Haven't heard it. Both of those weapons are fight-enders. James also says people shot with shot uh, with handguns generally go out, quit shooting me, and go away. And people shot with rifles and shotguns die. I think that's oversimplifying. There's a lot of people that have died being shot with handguns, a lot. But consistently ending fights, consistent one-shot lethality, nothing compares to shotguns and rifles, and specifically shotguns. I'll tell you how true that is as I finish up here in world war 1 where they had all this trench fighting going on sometimes enemies would get down into the trench and would override the other enemy's trench and the most feared thing inside that trench was either the invader or the defender armed with a shotgun and uh, mostly it was it was the allies that had the shotguns it was our side and a lot of our our boys our american troops went over there with shotguns You did not want to be taken prisoner with a shotgun in your hands. You were so hated that the treatment you would get would probably mean death and a very painful death. They were feared because they turned human bodies into instant hamburger. One shot at that close range with buckshot, which is what they would use in combat, there was no question as to what the result was going to be. And these guys are running around with, you know... Eight millimeter Mausers on one side, 303 British, 306 on the other side, and those are hell, you know, hellaciously lethal rounds. But it was the shotgun that, in that war, I think everything other than some of the new armament weapons, the, like the tanks and the guns and the mortars and the gas. But when it came to the small arm, the one that was feared was the shotgun. There's a reason. The same gun that can be used to pluck birds out of the sky and leave enough of them to have a good meal with just by changing ammunition and changing nothing else, becomes lethal out to a range of 50 yards on humans. Or further, depending on certain ammunition choices and certain capabilities of the shooter, the shotgun is, to me, the most definitively adaptable, versatile, lethal, and effective weapon that a person can own. So while I have a huge spot in my heart for rifles and handguns, you folks that live overseas that, you know, Maybe you can own a 22 and a shotgun. Get a shotgun first. You people that are uh, low on funds that have to make a first choice as a a first weapon, shotgun. And go out and learn how to use it. And take some classes. Take some classes. Learn how to wing shoot with a shotgun. If you become a proficient wing shot with a shotgun, home defense scenarios, human-sized targets at home defense uh, ranges is is so simplistic as to be easy. I mean, it really is. So, there you go. There's uh, probably more about the shotgun than you wanted to know. A longer show than I had planned. Um, I always want to get really excited to do all my jack stuff when I'm talking about shotguns. But what I end up finding out is when I do, there's so much information. There's so much, because of how versatile the shotgun is and why it's so versatile, uh, we end up with these longer shows where I get kind of academic with it. Hopefully, it's been a good show for you. Hopefully, you've learned some things. I bet you've learned at least one or two things today. Remember, tune in tomorrow giving away those Cobra belts uh, from SOE Tactical Gear. Awesome, awesome product. We're giving away six tomorrow. Six on Friday. Tune in. You'll need to the code word. Make sure you are registered for the contest so you can play. Read the page on the contest so you know how to play so I am not going to spend a lot of time on this tomorrow. Um, and tune in tomorrow. Also, we'll be doing your questions uh, from a send-in show. I've got a really cool show planned for Wednesday, but I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. You'll have to tune in to see. With that, this is been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Everybody up.